Romans 3 this morning. However, before you open up your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 3, I want to ask you to take a moment and just look at your copy of the Word of God. Just take a moment and, and look at your Bible. And I just wonder what thoughts go through your mind when you look at your Bible. What emotions come into your heart? And I just wonder, when was the last time that you looked at your Bible and felt a real gratitude to God for the great gift of His Word? I want us to consider this question. I want you to consider it for your life. How different would your life be if we as a people did not have the Bible. Have you ever thought about what our culture and our family lives and our personal lives would be like were the Bible foreign to us? We would know so little about God. We would be left to our own conjectures and reasoning about the state of our souls and about the way of salvation. Can you imagine life without the promises of God? Without the warnings of God? With none of the stories? None of the promises? Sorry, none of the prophecies? None of the commands? None of the Psalms? None of the Proverbs? None of the wisdom literature? The gospel itself? Any knowledge of the facts of Jesus Christ? cut off from us. Can you even imagine, dear Christian, living in a society or a culture where the light of the Word of God has not yet come? For millions of people on our planet, living and breathing this very hour, there is no imagination needed. This is their reality. This is life as they know it. Theirs is a life with no gospel, no Savior, and no special revelation. Whether they know it or not, theirs is a life lived in darkness. Why do I begin my sermon this way? Because the central doctrine of our text this morning is that those who have the Word of God have a great advantage over those who do not have the Word of God. Let me say it again. Those who have the Word of God have a great advantage over those who do not have the Word of God. So open up your Bibles and look at Romans chapter 3. As we come to the book of Romans, you'll remember that Paul is making a case, he's making an argument. And the case that Paul was making is that all human beings, without exception, are depraved and under the righteous wrath of God. In chapter 1, 
verse 18, Paul says clearly, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here is the state of all humanity apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ. We are all under the wrath of God. This is the beginning of his argument. Paul unfolds this argument throughout the second half of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he takes aim at that person who would dare believe that he or she is the exception. All have sinned except for me. All are under the righteous wrath of God except for me. In particular, Paul addresses his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, who might have been tempted to think that because of their unique and special relationship with God, somehow they were exempt from His wrath. Oh yes, Paul, all Gentiles are under the wrath of God and headed towards hell, but not us Jews. A Jew might be tempted to say, surely we're different. After all, God gave us His law. And so Paul, in chapter 2, verses 12 through 24, reminds them that having the law does not make one righteous. Only doing the law can make one righteous and only doing it to perfection. And looking back over the history of Israel, do we find Israel not only having the law, but keeping the law? Is that the history we have? Oh no. The history of Israel is one of having the law and breaking it over and over and over. Though God had entrusted His word to them, they continued to neither believe the word nor heed its commands. And therefore Paul reminds them in verse 24 of chapter 2 that the very name of God was blasphemed because of them. The fact that Israel was given the law does not mean they are not under God's wrath. No, just the opposite. It means that they are even more culpable before God. For they had more light. They had more grace. And yet they continued in unbelief and disobedience. Oh, but Paul, Paul, we, we have the sign of circumcision. Surely that makes us different. Oh no, Paul says, In verses 25 through 29 of chapter 2, Paul rips that argument to shreds by reminding the Jews that circumcision was never about the outward mark, but about what it represented. Circumcision of the flesh was meant to teach the Jews that they must put away their flesh, spiritually speaking. They must be circumcised in heart. Or they themselves would be cut off from God. Circumcision did not imply that they were somehow exempt from God's wrath. No, just the opposite. It implied that if their hearts did not change and if they did not put away their flesh and devote themselves to God wholly and completely, they would most certainly experience His wrath. We can summarize what Paul is doing in all of these passages 
using Paul's own words in chapter 3, verse 9, where he says, All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's his point. That all are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, imagine a Jewish person hearing Paul explain that neither the law nor circumcision exempts them from the wrath of God. That person might respond, Well, Paul, if that's the case, is there really any benefit in being a Jew at all? Is that what you're saying, Paul? Are you saying that there is no benefit whatsoever in being physically related to Abraham? Tell us, Paul, do the Jews have any advantage at all? That's the question of chapter 3, verse 1. You see it? That's the question. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Here's another way to think about it. If you were to be born into the ancient world, would you rather be born as a descendant of Abraham and as a Jew, or would it be just as well to be born as an Egyptian, or a Hittite, or an Assyrian, or a Phoenician? Would there be any special advantage of being born into the Jewish family of the Old Testament? And Paul's answer is, oh yes. Oh yes. Sure, other peoples were more advanced. Sure, other peoples were more populous. Sure, other peoples were more powerful. But all of these pale in comparison to the great advantages given by God to His chosen Old Testament people, the Jews. Was there an advantage in being a Jew? Was there an advantage in being one of the circumcised? Absolutely. What advantage has the Jew? Paul says, much in every way. That's Paul's answer in verse 2. And then to explain himself, Paul begins a list of the great advantages given the Jews. But he never gets beyond number one. (laughs) He begins a list. You see, he says, uh, to begin with, and that could be translated first, but he never gets to second. (laughs) Um, All the way over in Romans 9, a long ways from here. He picks up this theme again. But for the time being, he is caught up with what he sees as being the foremost advantage of the Jews. What was the great advantage of the Jewish people? The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Do you see it there in verse 2? The oracles of God. The legia or legia. It refers to divine utterances, to the very words of God Himself. 
In Paul's mind, the most obvious advantage that the Jews had, that the Egyptians and the Phoenicians and the Assyrians and the Hittites, these people did not have this, but the Jews had this one key advantage, that they had been entrusted with the very Word of God. Okay? Why is that such an advantage? What's the big deal about that? Well, he assumes we know, but I'm not going to assume we know. Let me mention you four, let me mention to you four advantages that Israel had over every other nation in the ancient world because they had the Word of God. And as you hear these, recognize that these are four advantages that you and I have today because we have the Word of God that millions of people today do not have because they do not have the Word of God. Number one, in the Scriptures, Israel had more information about the true God than any other people in the world. In the Scriptures, Israel had more information about the true God than any other people in the world. Think about how different Israel's view of God was from the rest of the world because they had the Scriptures. The rest of the ancient world was polytheistic. They worshipped many gods. Oh, there were tribal gods and there were national gods and there were family gods. There was gods of the earth and there were gods of the water. There were gods of the sun and gods of the moon. There were gods of life and gods of fertility and gods of death. And Israel was entrusted with the truth that no other nation yet knew that there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Deuteronomy 4.35 To you, Israel, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Who else knew that? Folks, we grew up with this because the light has come to us. We, We think, of course there's only one God. We've known that since we were in diapers. How did you know that? Because the light of the Word of God has affected us in our culture, in our families. Nobody knew that at this time. It was a gift given to Israel by the Word of God. Are you shocked to know that there's people who still don't know that? That the Lord your God, the Lord is one? The rest of the ancient world worshipped gods who were limited in their power. Each god and each goddess had their own domain over which they controlled, but they were not omnipotent. But Israel was told in the Scriptures that there is only one God and He rules over every domain. That Yahweh is the God of the earth and the God of the sea. Yahweh is the God of the sun and the God of the moon. That Yahweh is the God of life. Yahweh is the God of fertility. Yahweh is the God of death. All power is in His hands. He is omnipotent. He is God alone. Job 42.2, after Job has had quite an experience with the Lord teaching him, Job says, I know that you can do 
all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Israel was given a higher view of God than any other people on the planet. And how did they gain this knowledge of God? They gained it through the gift of the scriptures. From the earliest writings of the Old Testament to the later writings, the truth of who God is was being revealed to Israel. The rest of the ancient world believed in gods who were fickle. You couldn't trust them. This God might be in a good mood today, and that God might treat me well today, but that God might be in a sour mood tomorrow, and that God might treat me badly tomorrow. God revealed to Israel, I am a steadfast God. I am a rock. I am unchangeable. I am faithful. My words are infallible. My promises always come true. The true God is anything but fickle. The rest of the ancient world believed that gods could be bribed. Gods could be duped. Israel knew that the true God could not be bribed nor deceived because he sees all and he knows all and his wisdom is infinite. Oh, friend, how different would our lives be if we did not know these things? And dear friends, how do we know them but through the word of God? We should praise God that the light of his word has shone far and wide in our world that those ancient, primitive, polytheistic views are now found mainly only in the remote places of our planet, like parts of Indonesia. Even the great majority of those today who hate God, who reject God, have still been affected by the Bible, and they still have a Christian view of God in which they see God as one rather than many, so that they're not hating all the gods. No, they hate the one true God. God has given grace to our world through His Scriptures, and those Scriptures were given first to Israel, and then, like the Gospel, it came from Israel to the world. So, number two. Number two, a second advantage. In the Scriptures, Israel had more information about the true condition of their souls than any other people in the world. In the scriptures, Israel had more information about the true condition of their souls than any other people in the world. People by nature know that sin exists, and people by nature know that they are sinners. But people also naturally tend to try and excuse their sin. They try to rationalize their sin so that we can hold ourselves up in high esteem, dupe ourselves into thinking that we're okay, and that there's nothing to fear about a coming day of reckoning. That's the tendency of the natural human heart. But Israel was given the truth. Israel was given Genesis 3. They knew about the fall of man. Israel was given Genesis 4. Five, six. They knew how the depravity of man had increased and spiraled downward with each successive generation, resulting in a flood that destroyed the world. They knew about the depravity of man and how it moved God to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah with flames of fire so that they were utterly wiped off the face of the earth. Israel was given Exodus and Leviticus, where they learned of the holiness of God, where they learned of a God who cannot and will not wink at sin. Throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, 
the depravity of man was spoken to Israel clearly. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand? I saw this week a quote from a very famous man. If I said the man's name, you would know his name immediately. Uh, And he said that the greatest advice he could give any person was to follow their hearts. Israel knew that that's the worst advice that you could ever give an unbeliever. But because the heart is desperately sick, it is deceitful above all things. Follow your heart and you will be deceived unless your heart has been made new. Israel knew that. Nobody else did. We know it today. How do we know it today? From the Scriptures. You say we know it from experience. Well, amen to that. But apart from the Scriptures, we would be tempted to deny it. We would be tempted to rationalize it away. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then also can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Israel had that. Number three. In the Scriptures, Israel had more information about the true way of salvation than any other people in the world. Israel had more information about the true way of salvation than any other people in the world. Have you ever stopped to think about and to realize how different the religion of Israel was from the religion of the peoples around them? God taught His people that a Messiah was coming, one that would set all things right, We have that very first promise, the the proto-evangelium in Genesis 3.15. And from there forward, everything in the Old Testament Scriptures is about this one to come. Through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob will this one come. And this one will set everything right. He will be from the lineage of David. He will be a king and he will be a prophet and he will be a priest. Israel knew this. Others did not. The religion of Israel was all about one thing, teaching them to trust God and to receive the salvation that was coming through this Messiah. Every sacrifice, every feast day, every Sabbath day was all intended to point to this one. Meanwhile, the pagans around Israel tried to appease their fickle gods with sacrifices Children were burned to the god Molech. Men would go to the pagan temples and indulge in fornication with the temple prostitutes in order to get their crops to grow. They would go to the gods of wine and food and indulge in drunkenness and gluttony that their prosperity would increase. All around Israel, the religion of the ancient world was a religion of serving carnal pleasures in the name of serving gods. How different was Israel because they had the Scriptures? How different was the message of salvation that they had? Seek the Lord, Yahweh, while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Repent. 
repentance and faith. Israel had that message. Nobody else did. Folks, for centuries, people lived and died and never heard of the true God. And it's still happening today. Finally, number four, in the scriptures, Israel had more encouragements to turn from sin and trust God than any other people in the world. Israel had more encouragements in the scriptures to trust God and turn from sin than any other people in the world. What do I mean? Well, they had the promises written on their scrolls. Right? They had the law on tablets in the Ark of the Covenant. Written with the very fingers of God as it was. They had the warnings Israel had the examples and the stories of Abraham and Moses and David and Elijah and Elisha, Joshua. Israel had songs, songs given to them by God to teach their souls to trust Him. They had prophecies and proverbs. They had commandments and words of love. And scroll after scroll after God-given scroll, they had encouragements to trust God and to turn from their sin. Did the Assyrians have these scrolls? They did not. Do you see why Paul says in verse 2, friend, you've misunderstood me. I am simply saying that a Jew does not exempt you from the wrath of God. But there was a great advantage in those Old Testament days, indeed in his own day at that point, in being a Jew. For they had the Scriptures. Of course, you know the heartbeat of Paul was to take the Scriptures and the truth of God and the Gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth so that that advantage would be shared with all. So what's the application for us who are here this morning? For those of us who have the Word of God, most of us have multiple copies of the Word of God. We have have the Word of God in ten translations. I do in my office. Unbelievable! How should this affect us? Number one, we ought to be thankful for our Bibles. The most obvious application and implication is that we ought to be a people of gratitude. Shame on us if our hearts have grown cold to this gift. Dare we forget that we do not deserve the Word of God. Dare we forget that this book is worth more than our lives. It is through these words that the Holy Spirit has given us life and salvation and brought us to our Savior. Could it be that we are unthankful? Could it be that we've begun to take this great gift for granted? Have we forgotten that there were men who gave their lives so that we would have this book in our language? Have we forgotten that special providence of God which moved men to copy the Bible book by book, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, word by word, by hand, that it would be preserved for coming generations. Have we forgotten how the Word of God 
was kept in the holies of holies, the holy of holies. How indeed the the law of God was kept in the Ark of the Covenant, behind the veil, and that it was there in the Holy of Holies with His Word that God's special presence dwelt. There has always been and forever will be a special connection between the presence of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God. We have no hope of being indwelt by the Spirit and enjoying God's special presence forever apart from His Word. It is with the coming of the Word that God's Spirit and His presence come in its own unique and special way to save and to bless. Friends, does your heart resonate with the psalmist? Can you cry out to God in prayer, O God, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Psalm 119, 129 through 131. What's the last time you panted for the word of God? Leads me to this second application. First, be thankful. Second, make use of the Word of God. Let us make use of this great gift. What a tragedy that God gave to Israel this special gift and Israel refused to make use of it. Century after century, the vast majority of Israel lived in unbelief and disobedience. They played games with the Word of God. They changed its teachings and replaced its teachings with their own traditions. They chased after the other gods, the Baals, and they worshipped at the Asherahs. They refused the great light that was given to them. And because of this, God's great judgment came upon them. And Israel was destroyed. Friends, we have been entrusted with the Word of God. This is a wonderful privilege, and it comes with a great responsibility. We must be good stewards of God's Word. And the best way to honor the Word, and to preserve the Word, and to honor the Word, to steward the Word, is to study it, and to believe it, and to obey it, and to pass it on. Let us make use of the Word of God. It is, dare we forget, a love gift from God to us for our good. We're fools if we don't take advantage of it. That's what we are. I've told you this story before. I love it, so I'm going to tell it again. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan pastor, writer, told of an acquaintance who went to hear a preacher. The preacher's name was John Rogers of Dedham in England. And Pastor Preacher Rogers' sermon that day was on the subject of the preciousness of the Bible. It was an encouragement for the people not to neglect their Bibles, but to make use of their Bibles. And this friend said, Mr. Rogers was on the subject of the Scriptures. And in that sermon, he fell into an expostulation with the people about their neglect of the Bible. And he impersonated God to them. He said, well, I have trusted you with my Bible for so long. And what have you done? You've slighted it. 
It lies in such and such houses, all covered with dust and cobwebs. You dare not, you care not to listen to it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And the pastor impersonated God, taking his Bible from the people and walking off with it. And then he came back and he impersonated the people. He fell on his knees and he cried out and he pled, Lord, whatever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children. Burn our houses. Destroy our goods. Only spare us thy Bible. Do not take away from us thy Bible. And then he personated God to them again, saying, Say you so? Well, I will try you a while longer. Here is my Bible for you. I will see how you use it, whether you will love it more, whether you will observe it more, whether you will practice it more and live more according to it. We're told that once that sermon was over, the people had been struck to the heart that uh, the guy described it as, as the place was deluged with tears. There was a, a flood of, of tears. And even the man who gave this testimony said that he went out and hung his head on the neck of his horse and wept for a quarter of an hour because his heart had been broken about his neglect of the Word of God. Friends, this is what we need. We need to be struck afresh by the Spirit of God concerning our Bibles We need to see anew how utterly foolish we are to let our Bibles sit unopened and unstudied when all that we need for joy and peace and purpose lies within its pages. Do we think so little of God that we would spurn this great gift? Do we think so little of His wisdom that we don't even think it's worth our attention and our careful study? Oh, church... Should not learning and understanding the truths of God in the Bible be the constant project of our lives? Should we not want to know the Bible inside and out so that we can be changed by it, so that we can be a blessing and a fountain of wisdom for our spouse and our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Don't we want the Bible to go from here to in here so that when you come to me on the spot, I can speak to you real words of wisdom and be a blessing to you and may God bless you through it. I want to be like the saints of old whom it was said when they were pricked, they bled Bible. Don't you? It, it, It just ran through their veins because they knew it so well and loved it so much. I want my attitudes, my thoughts, my feelings, my words, my actions all to be an overflow of the glorious wisdom of God found in the Bible. How about you? Then should we not commit ourselves afresh to the study of the Word of God? The desire to hide it in our hearts. Well, finally, last application, last implication is that we should support the work of those who are striving to get the Word of God to others. Let us support the work of those who are striving to get the Word of God to others. Recently, a friend of mine, Jim Upchurch, he's been here several times and preached, he posted a video of Bibles, which had just been recently translated into the language of a, of a village of people. And he, the video was of the airplane carrying the package of new Bibles coming to land at this village. And the whole village had come out. And it was amazing. They were singing and they were dancing and they so wanted to have these Bibles in their hands. It was, it was moving to watch. 
I've heard of stories of of Christians who would walk for miles to get one page of the Scriptures for themselves. I've heard stories of people who would take it home and read that page of Scripture and memorize that page of Scripture so that by the very next day it had gone from that paper into their hearts so they could give it to somebody else who was desperate for a page of the Bible. Here's the facts. According to Wycliffe Bible Translators, 6,900 languages that we know of being spoken today. There's more, but we know we can identify 6,900 languages in our world today. Of those, at least 2,100 of those languages have no portion of the Bible in their language at all. This represents at least 340 million people, more than the entire population of the United States, that does not have a Bible in their language which they can understand. Nearly 75% of those people who do not have a Bible in their language live in one of the three most unreached regions of our planet. Of those 6,900 languages... There's only 457 that have a whole Bible in their language. Out of those 6,900 languages, only 457 have a whole Bible in their language. There are millions of people in our world who are cut off from the gospel, cut off from missionaries, cut off from the truth because they speak a language we don't understand. I wanted to give you a picture of this, so I wanted to, to show you this. I sure would if you come help me. What I have here is a list of all of the linguistic people groups, that is, people who speak a language, who do not have a Bible in their own language. And I asked Sherwood if he would come and help me open this up and let you see just how long this list really is. If you think about it, we live in... uh, Keep going, we'll see it unfold. We live in 2011. Uh, Y'all know it's the 400th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. Uh, We've had an English translation. Uh, The Tyndale Bible was the first. The Tyndale New Testament came out in 1526. The Geneva Bible, which was the Bible of the Puritans, the Bible of the Pilgrims, came out in 1560. The King James Version came out in 1611. We've had a Bible for more than 450 years in our language. These are all peoples who do not still today have a Bible in their own language. Just to give you a a little picture here, uh, the first one, the uh, Chinua language, 76,000 people speak that language and have no Bible in their language. Uh, Let's see, Uh, the Samo-Matya language, 105,000 people who speak that language and do not have a Bible in their own language. Uh, We could go on. There are some very small groups, the uh, Kagalati people, 820 people. 820 people who speak that language, but who are cut off because they do not have a Bible in their own language. So this whole list represents the challenge that is before the people of God. Um, Wycliffe Bible Translators has 6,000 people working for them in 95 countries, and their goal is to have the work begun on a Bible translation for every one of these people groups by the year 2040. They believe that can be done, but we need people, and we need resources, and we need money. And so we, as the people of God, ought to take this to heart. 
we as the people of God ought to remember this and be burdened by it. There may be some young people in here who are really good at grammar, really good at linguistics, really good at language. And if so, we've said often that we want God to raise up from our church pastors and we want God to raise up from our church missionaries and church planters. Let's add to that list. We want God to raise up from our church Bible translators. And the way it works is that missionaries go and they live with the people whose language they don't even understand and they live with them and they live with them until they begin to catch on. And after living with them for some years and begin they, as they begin to get the hang of the language, then they can begin to translate the Bible into that language. It's a long, time-consuming process. It is important work. Church, aren't we thankful for the Word of God? Shouldn't we be freshly committed to studying it since we have such a great advantage? Church, shouldn't we be committed to helping these peoples around the world, literally millions and millions represented on this sheet of paper, who do not yet have the word? Let's pray. Well, at this time, I would ask you to consider all that you've heard this morning the doctrine of Romans 3, 1 through 2, of the great advantage of having the Word of God. I would ask you to consider whether you have been thankful for it. I would ask you to examine your heart and to see whether you have truly been taking advantage of the Bible. It's the great gift that it is. I would ask you to consider whether you have been involved in any way, even through prayer, in this work of getting the Bible to all of these millions of people who do not have it. Could it be that there are some here this morning who though you have access to the Bible in your own language, you fail to give it your attention. And because of that, you know little of Christ. Because of that, you've had little experience with your sins being a stench to you. Rather, you've just been living your life your own way apart from Christ. Oh, dear friend, run to the Bible. Let it show you your sin and let it show you the glories of Christ who is a perfect Savior for sinners. May God, by the Word of God, give you faith that you will be saved. Friends, what needs to happen in your life as a response to what God is teaching you today? Let's take a few moments. Let's each respond to God privately in a time of prayer and then we'll join together and respond in song here in a moment. Let's pray.